Hello and welcome. You are listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson, and unfortunately, Joshua is unable to join me for recording today, but never fear, as he makes an appearance in most of this episode entitled Turning Off Normal, The Demcon Debrief Part 1. In this episode, we will be discussing everything from the importance of brand recognition and emergency management to the placement of emergency management programs within organizations, and perhaps most importantly, how to unfreeze an organization and promote adaptation during crisis. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. In October of 2020, both Josh and I had the opportunity to attend the very first ever virtual Ontario Disaster Emergency Management Conference, or DEMCON for short. I thought this was a very innovative platform, including multiple chat rooms, ongoing surveys and draws, and even a cocktail hour. But by far the most interesting part of this conference, and I'm being very biased here, was the commentator's booth that Josh and I had the privilege of running. Uh, In the booth, we were able to chat with the conference presenters and attendees and dig a little deeper into their topics in a conversational way. And over the next couple of episodes, I'm very excited to be able to bring you the highlights of some of those important conversations with both established and emerging leaders in the field of disaster management. For today's feature, we were able to connect with Magda Sulzicki on making change within organizations. Magda works in grid emergency management for Toronto Hydro and is a senior crisis and business continuity manager with proven success in leadership, operational excellence, and program development. She's also been recognized multiple times for inspiring team members to excel, encouraging productive work environments, and designing award-winning and emergency and continuity management programs. So please listen carefully as Magda takes us through some very current and very relevant challenges facing emergency management in Canada. So uh, great, con- uh, great uh, presentation, Meg. I really enjoyed your your talk. Just so many little uh, great pearls. The the point about uh, you know the logo and the importance of uh, branding and getting some uh, yeah. you know a spirit of corpse for your uh, for your team is so important. And uh, you know I, I I think it's hard to underestimate the value of a good uh, good branding campaign when you're trying to launch. Uh, look, I got I've, I was telling Grayson the other day. I've I've got your mug you know, as much as I might joke around about it, like it's huge, right? Like you, you look at, you know, the swoosh, you look at anything, you look at the swoosh, you look at Apple, you, you, you know exactly what that is. Like the, the subconscious reaction is, is instant, right? Like it, it communicates a message right off the hop. And so that happens over time. Like you can do that. I mean, I'm not kidding myself into thinking that I'm building up the Nike of, of emergency management, but it, but it is, it is relevant to Toronto Hydro and people see that logo. It means something now. And there's a couple of very specific programs that we run, um, you know, the biggest one that people are always interested in that creates the biggest kind of shakeup at our company is uh, our mutual aid program. We do a international mutual aid down to the States a lot to help with disaster response and vice versa. Our partners may come up here. Um, so people just automatically, they're like mutual aid. Oh yeah. Okay. Like that's that international stuff. And, and they see our logo and they're like, oh, you guys are the mutual aid people. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Yeah. We're the mutual aid people. And as long as they start there, we're, we're somebody, we're no longer a nobody in the organization, which is huge. Right. This brand brand recognition, strategic management, program building, this is your jam, it sounds like. And uh, it's the management in emergency management that's, if I'm being honest, a lot of uh, emergency management programs are, are lacking. You know, everyone's quite good at the emergency response and the working long hours and the making sure that uh, we have all the shiny toys. But when it comes to the kind of longer term 
program development. Uh, that's something I think typically emergency management programs can improve on. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's something you were talking a, a little bit about in both of your talks uh, and how to basically build some organizational change and, and, and resilience. Uh, you talked a lot mm -hmm. about the change management and this idea of unfreezing the normal operations of uh, organizations to sort of build in some emergency management. Can you expand a little bit on that? What are some techniques that uh, you can use to, to turn off normal? So it's really interesting, actually, if, if uh, you know, if there is somebody on, on right now who's listening, I really do encourage you to actually go in and read Cotter's stuff directly. I just kind of was, I just took a ma like a mashed potato thing and I just mashed it up with a bunch of emergency management concepts. So I think in its truest form, you're going to get a lot of uh, really great uh, context that I wasn't able to include or touch upon. And he's a really brilliant guy. And uh, lots of publicly available information on, on that topic. The creating urgency thing is really interesting because he actually talks about specifically orchestrating crises in some cases to facilitate change. Like a crisis in some definitions, and I know that's another interesting thing about emergency management, we are operating on so many different definitions. But there is one interesting definition of a crisis that I really liked, which is a crisis is just a decision point. Um, it's a moment where you're forced into a corner and you have to make a decision to be one way or another. Um, and, um, and I like that because, uh, you know, it, it, if you, if you look at it from that regard, um, you know, forcing somebody into a corner to make a decision, I'm sure all of us have been at meetings where like no decisions are made and it's the most mm -hmm. frustrating experience in the world. You're like, we came here to talk about this and we're walking away and having resolved nothing. It's a very dissatisfying experience. So, um, I think a lot of like absence of change is this absence of commitment or decision-making. Like I'm not... Oh, like I'll put that off for later. Oh, like, should we implement this new system? I don't know if we should go with SAP or whatever. I, well, let's just wait a couple months and it just keeps getting put off. So the idea would be to uh, create a forced decision space. Like, like you gotta, you gotta make the decision. And so figure, I think, I think if you want to get to a point where you want change to happen and, and like, that's what he was saying at the very beginning is like 50% of, of change, um, initiatives fail in, in the, in the first step of unfreezing of creating urgency because people don't actually take action. They, that's the problem is they don't commit to taking action. And that could be happening for a number of reasons. And this is why I was kind of alluding to the fact, like in order to make a decision, depending on the decision maker, I know that I personally, I'm very quick to make decisions. And then, uh, and then I'm going to have to pivot to all the problems that my quick decision-making creates, which is, which is just, it's something that I know about myself. And I understand that I will create this, this, uh, I will make a decision. And then my team is running around behind me being like, Oh my God, Magda, what, what's going on here. But, but like, you know, as I think, as long as you're aware of that for yourself and say, okay, like I'm going to try and make decisions incrementally. We're going to try and make some sort of action happen. Even if it's tiny little baby steps, we're going to make some sort of action as opposed to maybe one big action. But one big thing that I need in order to make these decisions is information. So I'm not going to make a decision no matter how big or small, if I don't have some sort of information, I think one of the reasons why people, don't change or don't take action is because they don't have enough information to do it right so at the beginning of my talk i was saying um about that personal experience i had with like bad eating habits right so i was working shift work um eating really badly i knew that i was eating badly i was just at the airport with harvey's is there mcdonald's whatever tim hortons you're working shifts you just grab whatever's easiest to eat and i had enough information to be like oh it's not great but it wasn't enough to like force me into a crisis moment going to the doctor and being like okay your choice is now this like feeling sick all the time or taking this medication which is a band-aid solution uh which will cover up 
<clears throat> you're not actually going to be improving your condition or just changing your behavior. And then having information that the doctor presented me with to make that decision that that gave me empowered me to actually take action. So I think that's the biggest thing, Grayson, is to um, when you're when you want change to happen, have you given a change maker or a decision maker enough information to take the step that you want them to take? And take into account their personality. Are they like me? Are they going to say, okay, like I'm going to give Magda the minimum amount of information she needs to take action? Or is this a person who really needs to be convinced for a number of different reasons? Uh, how do they operate? What are their motivations? Are they motivated by the politics in the organization? Are they motivated by their reputation? Are they motivated by the good for the organization? Their people have very, very different motivations for making decisions. So you have to figure out what is it about this decision maker that's motivating him or her to either take or not take action. How do I speak to them at a very personal level uh, about how to um, how to empower them to make the decision and what information do they need to do that? So I think that's my long-winded way of saying that's how you do it. Yeah, I, I think you touched on so many points there. One of the other things you're talking about was how we sometimes focus when we're trying to decide where do we need to make change. We focus on the wrong stuff, like the little things like let's run the EOC better. Oh, maybe we can get a new splash of paint on the EOC or some fancy monitors or a smart board or something, but you're not actually making substantial changes to your program. Um, you know, I work, used to work in municipal government and had a, you know, uh, for in a county and uh, the, the problem was uh, coming up with some uh, uh, climate change and uh, uh, like a recycling uh, waste management plan. Anyways, the, it, hilarious that, that they had a, a documented plan for how recycling was handled in the um, like in the county headquarters building, but nothing for the actual municipality. And it's easier to focus yeah. on that. You know, we're going to put recycling uh, cans here and, and do, you know, and it very kind of inward focused uh, um, yeah. decisions. And it's hard sometimes to, to realize uh, um, where to actually focus your limited resources for those uh, tough decisions and actually make substantive change. Well, you know what, that goes back to the, um, I kind of touched upon that Pareto principle as well, right? In the, in the talk, which talked about 80% of your problems, so to speak, arise from 20% of your kind of mm. circumstances or issues. So it's kind of an mm. input output process. So 20% uh, of your inputs contribute to 80% of, of what you experience in the output end. And so, you know, using that example of recycling, I have no idea, obviously, what the context was, but if it was a substantial problem in your organization, in, in your community, right? Like maybe there is something about recycling that is deeply problematic and in, in an emergency, your debris management is just like all over the map. And it's really important for you to have that. That's actually really solid. If there was a good reason to do it, if, if you, if you went through and you did like, let's say you had a major storm or major um, tornado rips through, and you go through your after action process and you're like, wow, debris management and solid waste management in our city was like, ugh, it was really, really bad. Um, and then really do a deep dive onto it. Hey, what happened? Oh, there wasn't a procedure for recycling. Well, that's what, I mean, nobody was driving around. Like then, then there is a strong case to be made for that. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. Like we didn't realize that 50% of the debris that was flying around and hit people. And we've had like 35 different injuries in the public and get the numbers, right? We had um, and it's like, we had this many injuries. It took this much effort as a, if we ran the program normally, it would have cost us a hundred thousand dollars to clean up the city. It cost us $2.5 million because everything was scattered everywhere because then we had to triple our workforce to do like manual pickups. Right. So how are you communicating about it, finding the problem and then saying, look, like we spent this much money, amount of money on it. We could have spent this much money. It takes us a month to build a solid debris management plan. Let's just do it and solve 80% of our problems. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it could work. It just, 
for that's the other thing that but that goes back to communication maybe there was a good reason for that plan and nobody told you about it so you felt demotivated as an employee to be working on that because someone's like hey josh go go work on this plan and you're like what the hell like how does this fit into the big picture but if somebody told you like hey did you know that we wasted this much money last time and this many people got injured and and this plan is going to solve so many problems and like 30, 30 action items that came out of our last after action review were relating to debris management. We'd be like, okay, wow. So my work actually means something. Like when I do this plan, it could mean that we're going to save so much money as a city and that people aren't going to be hurt. And now I feel differently as an employee working on that project because it means something to me. Not everyone is going to be on board, right? right. Like it, it, that's just, an, that's just part of it. Yeah. But Right. But finding those ambassadors, uh, like I was mentioning earlier, when you're building these coalitions of people who are going to help change happen in your organization, you have to find ambassadors everywhere. And if you like the vast majority of an organization, actually in a healthy organization, you should have a lot of people on the front lines executing and doing the work. That should be mm -hmm. the bulk of your organization, right? But obviously, like the more management you have in the middle, like starts to get a little bit top heavy and we know how things like that shake out. So, so in a healthy organization, you should have a lot of these people. And so uh, you know, at, at Toronto Hydro, I don't even know what the percentage exactly split is, but there's a huge amount of people who are in a unionized workforce and in the field. And whether we like it or not, they are our brand ambassadors every single day. They're out there in the field. And we could say whatever we want at headquarters or in the emergency operations center, how these people operate on the floor, on the streets, in the field is what we really are. The other, the other quote that I really like I've heard before is your reputation is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And so if if your uh, people don't have confidence in who you are and you're not communicating, you're not clear and transparent and open and inclusive with, of these people, do you think that they're going to have your back in the same way? And then when they're on the floor kind of talking to their patients or talking to customers or whomever and, and being like, oh yeah, like I get it. You know, it's just, it's just management. They're just crappy everywhere, you know, management. And yeah. it's, it's that relationship, but, but like how I think, you know, every relationship is, is 50%. You, you contribute equally, right? So if you're not contributing to a healthy relationship with those people and you're not integrating and including them, you're not building effective ambassadors for whatever it is, whether it's, whether right. it's change or not, whether it's, I think it's just having a healthy work environment. So if you don't have those people on board in the normal circumstances, how the heck are you going to have them on board with you in crisis circumstances when you haven't built that trust with them early on? So the running joke in health, I can speak from the healthcare perspective in emergency management, the complexity sometimes is used just as the catch-all excuse for, for poor management. Yeah. Oh, it's just, it's just a complex organization. Yeah, I hate that. I, I hate that excuse so much. <laughs> I, like it's, it's uh, here's the thing is I remember uh, I, my mom told me this years ago, a big mess is just a bunch of small messes. If you just clean up a small bit of the mess, yeah. uh, slowly but surely, you know, and, and it goes back to that whole Pareto principle. I guess she didn't, she didn't realize um, you know, she was saying the Pareto principle, right? Uh, you kind of, you clean up one small thing and I'm kind of looking at my apartment in horror right now. Thank goodness you guys see the back wall, but I, I have some cleaning of my own to do. Um, uh, but it's just going to be one step at a time. And so these whole things, like, it's so complex. How do I even do it? I'm like, well, that's what you're getting paid money to do. Figure it out. You mm -hmm. came in and you make a more resilient organization. That means that you're going to turn the spaghetti bowl into something sensical. Like that's what you committed to. And if you can't do it, I don't, maybe they can find somebody else who can. Um, but I, the idea of like throwing up your hands in the air and saying like, oh, it's really, really hard. So we're just going to keep it the way it is until a crisis happens and somebody gets hurt or uh, we lose a ton of money, we go bankrupt. Like that's. 
And that's, and sometimes that's like to, you know, to kind of loop it back, we were talking about, that's why you focus on the wrong stuff because you focus on the easy things, you know, it's it's easier (laughs) to buy a a bunch of fancy EOC equipment and and have the illusion of preparedness in in healthcare. It's our, you know, disaster codes. It's like embarrassing across the country. We've got these, you know, code orange, code red, code yellow, code whatever. And then you scratch just a little bit below the surface and there's not, you know, not a lot of depth, but it's the, you know, the only thing worse than preparedness is the illusion of preparedness. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. With your uh, organizational stuff, I, I think, um, and you kind of I mentioned some of the standards, NFPA and, and, and others. Um, I think one of the useful things that those standards, even though they're pretty dense, uh, one of the things that is a common theme talks about this mismatch between authority, uh, you know, to actually make a decision and having responsibility. And sometimes yeah. uh, organizations get structured such that you've got responsibility for something, but without the authority to, to affect change. And I think as emergency managers, that's uh, one of our, our big challenges is to find the right, uh, uh, you know, place for us within that organization that we can actually uh, uh, do our job and, and, and have the, you know, whether it's a spending limit or authority or, or having, um, you know, connections with executive leadership, whatever it is, that can be a challenge sometimes to navigate that within uh, an organization. So that's always actually been a pet peeve of mine, to be honest. I remember hearing this somewhere that emergency managers should have decision-making authority. And I say every single day that I'm so glad I have no decision-making authority, except, except within the context of my own program and like spending my own budget. Like, Thank God. I thank God every day that I don't have to wake up and do what like our vice presidents and CEO has to do if like running and making sure this company doesn't go down the toilet, you know, and, and they do a great job uh, of doing everything. And I've learned so much from them watching them respond in COVID. And, and I think this is something that emergency managers should really think about decision making authority comes with really heavy responsibility. And you see this like in a, in a legal context, right? You have your, your articles of incorporation and, and you have these documents that actually state like, look, you're a member of the board or you're an executive. When you make a bad decision, there's a very serious consequence. And not just that you're going to get let go. There are like fiduciary responsibilities and there's financial implications to you as an individual if you make irresponsible decisions on behalf of an organization. That, that same kind of responsibility doesn't hang over the head of a, an emergency manager. We are effectively administrators and we, our job is to administer emergency management processes and, and facilitate effective response to an emergency so that leaders um, who have the authority trust us understand that we have the best, their best interests and also the best interests of the organization. So that when we make a recommendation to, uh, to execute a particular process or for them to put themselves on the line, because don't forget, they are putting themselves on the line when they make decisions. We don't put ourselves on the line. I mean, we, we, we are, yeah, we can get fired, which, which isn't great, of course, but we're not going to be, we're not going to be sued, hopefully, right. Depending on what we do in the same degree that they do. So think of that trust, right. Think of that trust that has to happen. And I always like to turn it more inwardly. Like I understand that it's very tempting to look outwardly and say, okay, yeah, this person, like they should do this. What is it about me? That's not convincing enough or that am I not trustworthy enough? Or I'm not, am I not providing enough facts or data to empower this decision, this person to make the decision that I'm asking them to make? What is it about how I'm framing this argument? That's poor. Because if your argument was really well framed, you know, arguably, I think a lot of these people in these executive positions, they're not dumb people. They're there because they're pretty smart. I mean, I've, I've sat down and listened to some of our vice presidents talk and I'm like, oh my God, I, like you're in a different category. Um, but if they, if what you're trying to convince them to do doesn't make sense to them, have you ever asked them why? Have you tried to go back and take, bring a second case to them and say, look, like, I really do believe we need to change this system. Like we need to do this overhaul. I know it's going to cost us yeah. six million. But like, here's the case for it. And like, if you're not putting together a solid business case, 
I wouldn't do it. Like somebody came up to me and said, Hey, uh, I'd like to convince you to spend $6 million on this project. Uh, that may or may not work. I haven't bothered to do the research to tell you what the benefits are going to be, but I think we should do it because it feels right. Like I'd be like, no, get out of here. Um, so I think it's also our responsibility as specialists in emergency management to say, look, I've done the research and this, this shows like what I've, what I've seen is this, it's important for us to make this move and here are the benefits we're going to realize. Here's the return uh, on our investment because it is an investment, right? And your plot that you're putting on the line, I promise you, you're going to look better. If you stick with this, we're going to look, we're going to look better at the end of this than we did before. Yeah, I really, really like that perspective. Yeah. Uh, too often, emergency manager gets conflated with emergency responder or EOC director or whatever the kind of response-centric titles are. And you're definitely taking it from an organizational long-term perspective. There are, of course, you know, different jobs in emergency management. And emergency manager doesn't exactly mean a standard thing across all realms. Uh, in municipalities, for example, you know, sometimes they are expected to take on a bit more of a, a leadership role. But I think in general, you're, you're right. I really like your description of the role of a, an emergency manager within the organization is to be the, I don't want to say expert because so often we are generalists, but be the, the person who makes that business case for preparedness. And one of the things I really liked in your talk, and I think one of the themes of this conference so far is showing the value of the program. Uh, one of my mentors has a saying that you live or die by your statistics. And I think that's very true. It's so hard to show um, our value. And you've done some work with KPIs, program development. Uh, what are some effective ways that you've found to actually convince uh, or demonstrate the value of emergency preparedness? Because the, the big conundrum that we always have is, you know, the harder we work, the less it seems we're doing. I think it starts with, with vision, right? So um, what did you, what are you actually committing to delivering? Uh, and, and, and when you took on this job, were you clear about what they asked you to do? Because that can mean very, very different things to different people. I have worked in positions where the vision has been to uh, meet regulatory compliance, right? Which is just a tick in the box. And how I demonstrate value is making sure that they are compliant every single year to the standard that they wish to be compliant to. And that's how I deliver value. That's uh, very, very different to making a commitment to like resiliency, right? That's, that becomes a very, very different question. And I, I think you have to really um, cater it to the organization you're working with because I, I always use analogies because it's such a, a complicated and kind of, you know, gray area, but being strong, which is effectively what resiliency is, means very different things to different people. Um, and so I think that's also something that we have to take into account. What is it exactly like when we say that we're building resiliency to what degree? Mm. That's number one. Then it, then we have to deconstruct it um, further to say, okay, what is that now for the person that I am or for the organization that I am, what do I need to be healthy enough to execute the tasks that are demanded of me, right? So I'm getting like really, really gray here. So I'm going to try to bring it back to Toronto Hydro example. So Toronto Hydro kind of had this, the, the vision on the screen there. Basically, we're going to be ready to respond to everything and we're not going to stop until the job is done. Like, that's super vague. And that's really, really hard to, to commit to, to delivering something like that. And so, um, so we had to deconstruct, okay, what does that actually mean? Like to be ready based on the hazards that we're facing at Toronto Hydro, that means that we're going to probably be seeing a lot of storms. We're going to be seeing a lot of EOC administration. We're going to be seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of things in place and ready for us to execute. So when I, when I kind of built it for our, or for our team, I looked at it and said, okay, readiness for Toronto Hydro within the context of our hazard environment means that our people are going to be ready to do this job. We're going to have the systems materials 
and facilities in place to do our jobs. We're gonna have the relationships in place to do these jobs effectively. Uh, and then lastly, we're gonna continually engage and communicate to make sure people are always aware. So we broke it down into four leading indicators uh, for our program of, um, of readiness. And then we also do a whole bunch of measurement afterwards of, of response after and how we did uh, relative to what our expectations were. But that's how I kind of measure our strength. Like if we were to say, how strong are we to withstand this competition? I kind of treat in my head as like the Olympics, right? Every time you go into an event, it's like the Olympics, okay? So you know that a given event, like a flood or like a tornado or something is gonna create certain kinds of conditions and you're gonna have to perform the following ways. So are you prepared and do you have the, the tasks in place? And so that's how I do it is I, you kind of have to break it down, starting with like, what was your job? What did it hire you to do? Um, what was the vision? What are their expectations? And then how can you break those down into micro goals to achieve along the way? And then each of those are like further divided into activities and deliverable. So it's a really big tree of activities ultimately that boil up into that one big mission statement that you have. What, uh, what do you think is the future? Where, where do you think uh, emergency management as a uh, career? When we have Demcon uh, 2030, do you think uh, we'll still be using buzz phrases, resiliency and, and things like that? Or, or what are your predictions? <laughs> Well, we talk about the same things. I think, I think being resilient in 20 years time is going to mean something very different. We're going to have to be resilient against different things. So um, I don't think resiliency is going away anywhere, but what we'll have to be resilient against is going to be very different. Um, so it's not so much, I think we'll also always kind of be the personal trainer, so to speak, of the organization, but the competitions we're going to be getting ready for are different each time. So I always kind of see us as like a, almost like a, uh, a room full of coaches getting together and figuring out, okay, how do I train my team to to perform well at these like next Olympics or whatever. So every to every year, every couple of years, we're going to get different hazards. It's going to be something new and surprising that's coming our way. Some sort of black swan that we have to figure out and, and deal with. So I, I don't think it's, I think that's what, I think that's what's going to be different. The job will kind of remain the same. I, I really hope we're going to integrate more management concepts. There's so much stuff in, you know, in the, in the, you know, business administration fields and risk management fields. I think we could be doing a lot more to integrate those. And I really think more people come in with, um, some ideas and thoughts and experiments they've conducted uh, to in their organizations and programs and share those with us. Uh, but that's what I see it going. My, my personal prediction is I think we'll start seeing some more kind of subspecialized streams within emergency management. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were talking earlier about big data and uh, just being literate and able to um, interpret big data and, and explain that to others. But like you said, the, the MBA side and the, and the leadership side, uh, all there's just so many different skill sets uh, that I think uh, you know, we need uh, in the profession. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think the, I think people really need to be getting ready for um, uh, data literacy. If you're not data literate now, um, it's got to be something that you're doing and, and getting yourself ready for, because it's going to be really difficult, I think, for anybody in industry to, to keep up to speed with what the kids, the kids, I'm seeing my little cousins and what they're learning in school right now. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I need to start, like, I, I got to learn Python, what? Because they're, they're learning some crazy stuff. And if you're, uh, the one thing I, I think is going to be really important is that it's going to be so easy for us to become obsolete. And if you're not learning, you haven't committed to continual learning. That moment where you decided that you're not going to do it anymore was the moment that your career kind of ended. And you're just kind of on the slow train to totally. uh, irrelevant yeah. bill. So yeah. just teaching the same IMS course over and over again. Yeah. Like, it's so, so interesting that the pandemic has, has kind of highlighted uh, some organizations ability to stay relevant. Uh, and those that did not change did not survive uh, during this, this one. And I think that's just as true for emergency management organizations. Um, the groups in, in my experience, anyways, the groups that tried to continue to do things like they would have for a fire or whatever the case uh, may be, 
didn't succeed and were behind the eight ball by the time they, they realized they did have to have to change. That's a, I think that, that emergency managers should be equally excited and scared of emergencies because um, it's, it's your test, right? Like it's, it's like, if you're, if you're like an NBA coach and your team keeps failing, uh, keep getting booted out before the finals, like you shouldn't be excited about that because just cause you're an NBA coach doesn't mean you're a very valuable one. And that's the whole thing is like, if you're going into these uh, emergencies and you're failing, like someone's going to look at you and be like, dude, like what's going on? We hired you mm-hmm. to do something and it's not happening and you're not, we're not getting through these events. Like they're, they're definitely going to be revisiting it. So um, absolutely. I think, I think that it, it's going to be interesting to see how, how certain organizations pivot um, as a result of having experienced COVID just, just from like a fundamental level in terms of how they operate on the daily. Um, I think there's going to just be some very fundamental changes to, to how we work, how we live in communities, how our communities operate. And then as well, like our emergency management practices are going to have to pivot towards that as well. Like if everybody's working from home, what does continuity of operations now work mean for a work from home process? Like that's going to open a whole separate can of worms and different kind of planning that we're no longer used to. We're used to workforces in an office working together on trucks or whatever uh, on site, but no, they're no longer there. How do we pivot to something like that? So and capturing those changes uh, was something you seem to be passionate about. And we're talking about the after action reports. And I like the uh, the phrase you coined the mid action reports in your mm-hmm. yesterday's talk. I think it's fair to say that after action reports for the sake of a report is not an effective way to learn. And, and it's sometimes quite difficult to integrate uh, what you capture on paper into an organization. Uh, one of the things that I really liked from your chat was um, you have to go beyond the EOC uh, if you want to actually get any organizational change. And so often we see they really are EOC centric and focus on the response. And as we know, the response lasts five minutes in the in the grand scheme of things. How do you integrate learnings in real time? Because I don't think that the way forward is to wait for the disaster to be over and then implement the learnings because COVID's not going to be over. The, you know, the wildfire recovery is still going on today. Yeah, it's, uh, I can only talk about this within the context of like the industries that I've worked in to kind of, to be more specific. But um, one thing that I will say, and it kind of occurred to me as you were talking is that it's, it is funny because the disaster doesn't happen in the EOC. And it's so funny, like we disproportionately spend time trying to figure out how things went in the EOC. We're like, that's not where the disaster happened. I mean, that's where the management supposedly happened. So it is, I'm not saying don't, figure out what happened in the EOC because it's super important. But like, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, when when Elon Musk has an issue with his rocket and it doesn't take off and there's a flub, they don't just sit in the control center and they don't actually go in to see what happened to the rocket. Like they have to go look at it and be like, what happened to this thing that it flopped, right? Um, and it's weird, weird to me that we don't, we don't do that. It's like the problem wasn't here, it was over there. Um, so how do you do that? Um, I came across this um, this report a couple of years ago, and we've been working towards it at Toronto Hydro to to build our evaluation models according to this. Uh, but there's a New York State regulator for uh, power distribution, not hydro, power, I guess, uh, power distribution, um, and they came up with a report on how they would evaluate all um, all utilities who respond to disaster uh, in the state of New York according to a set of criteria. And this thing is really really detailed. And I kind of looked at it. I remember years ago we work a lot with a our utility partners in the States. And they started telling us about this. And I was just kind of curious because I was like, look, if somebody ever came up and said, hey, Magda, I want to use this scorecard 
to see how well you guys did, I, we wouldn't be able to do it. Like it was just, there was so much information they were trying to gather that we weren't even looking at, but then I started to look at it and it was so well organized. So I'll kind of go through it using that. So they, the New York state regulator had broken it down into three categories. The first one was how prepared were you? So did you call in extra people? Did you front end load with extra resources and personnel? What time did you do it? When did they come in? How effective, when did you make the call outs? How long does it take you to make the call outs? So these are all things you can start measuring before the disaster happens. Stockpiling, material stockpiling. How much of a given material did you have? Why did you have this much and not a certain other amount? Uh, was it hazard specific? Like, I think it'd be really interesting to go through and see, okay, do you understand right now in your organizations how much material or how much PPE or how much equipment you had uh, before COVID started? Were you measuring that? Like, those are things that are probably blind spots right now. But so preparation was one of the material stockpiling people. Did you communicate with your stakeholders? How many times? Which stakeholders? Why, why those specific stakeholders? Did you let them know how your organization might become impacted by, by the incoming uh, hazard? Then there was response. Uh, response is designed very specifically towards utility, uh, the utility sector. But I would, again, I would encourage everybody to look this up if you can find it. I'll try to send the link later to you, Grayson, if you want to post it somewhere, because it is really beneficial. Um, but they talked about um, safety hazards. How, uh, how many safety hazards did you have? How quickly did you go to those sites? Because for us, that means lines down, right? Like when a tree falls on, on, uh, on wires, those wires start dangling. Now you have high voltage wires dangling where the public can come touch it. God forbid a child goes in and, you know, it's a horrible potential circumstance. So immediately there's a regulatory requirement for us to have people on site and guarding these wires. So um, how quickly did you get those people out? How, how quickly were you communicating about uh, estimated times of restoration? Were you telling people when they could expect their power to come back on so that they can make empowered decisions about life choices they want to make, right? So that, that was a huge one. It goes into a lot of great detail about it. So to answer your question about how do you start watching information in real time, you have to start looking at, okay, do I have a system in place that answers this question? So if I'm looking at safety hazards, if I want to measure how many safety hazards are live in the system right now, do I have a system where I can see this um, and how am I tracking it in live? And this could also form your, you know, if you are using something like DLAN or you have a common operating picture, you can have these dashboards, you can use things like Tableau or Alteryx or something like that to render your data. Well, how are you collecting your data? Where's it coming from? You have reporting systems like we have our network management system where all the information is recorded directly in the system we can take that uh, those massive data sets render them down into dashboards and so we have these live dashboards that we're observing at all times uh, with regards to outage data things like that so i think it's about answering and saying okay which of the areas are most interesting to me what do i need to be watching and are there already existing systems in place that um, are monitoring for this data and then how can i integrate them of curiosity at hydro how do you organize the like the emergency management functions and uh, business continuity is it under similar one department or is are those uh, responsibilities that were distributed uh, it's all under us it's all under the disaster management program for for my team yeah it's and sorry similar similar uh, question just out of curiosity and then where do you report into is it safety is it operations it's operations okay that's a game I changer that, I, I don't think that's the norm i think that's uh really cool that you get to be part of operations and that going back to the you know to plug my talk uh building the coalition the push a huge push came from the operations group to have an operation specific emergency management group and i will say i've never seen anything like this in industry uh sorry in emergency management except in the utility industry it's really common uh, and it's actually kind of fascinating because I'm starting to see that industries where disaster impact is common 
emergency management starts to move closer and closer to operations. And where it's less common, it's more of a regulatory thing and it moves further and further away from operations. So I actually, I wonder, this is completely anecdotal, but like, I wonder if there could be some sort of correlation to the success of emergency management programs and their proximity to operations groups or their distance from the operations groups. I was at the uh, Canadian Nuclear Safety uh, Conference, I guess, last year, and uh, it seemed that that model was was a similar thing where they were quite uh, closely embedded similar thing, highly regulated industry. And, you know, they have lots of drills and various things, but much more operational focus. And that, that's why I was, I was wondering, and they'd, they'd kind of uh, divided some of their uh, business continuity stuff was in a separate group. And, and then the, the core business of, you know, plant and, and uh, the regulatory requirements and emergency management was, was much more operationally focused. So it is really, really interesting to see where programs lie within different organizations or municipalities. There is zero consistency uh, across Canada, even in on the line. Think about that your thesis. Yeah, there you go. That would be really interesting. I would read that thesis. Uh, Jack Lindsay did a, a little bit of a review of where all of the uh, emergency organizations sit uh, just in municipal worlds and provincial worlds and just unrecognizable province to province, municipality to municipality. And it does seem like the job changes so much depending on where you're positioned. So if you're under public safety, um, then you are definitely much more of an officer role and heavily involved in response. If you're under bylaw, which for some reason is a, sorry, that's my own bias there, but is a, is a common uh, place for emergency management to sit municipally, uh, then you're much more administrative role. If you're uh, your own department, it sounds great, but sometimes that's the worst thing that can happen because you're not connected to the rest of the uh, organizations. And then in within organizations, it does seem like quite often we're attached to fire and life safety or, or safety uh, elements. And that turns us into a bit of a uh, procedure writing role, essentially. And I think it's also tricky because we've had, it took us a while to find the sweet spot with scope, like program scope, um, because we were... Um, and I spend a lot of time actually when I, when I do teach, like when I do teach this, uh, as, as a course, I spend a lot of time just talking about scope and like, where do you think the scope of emergency management begins and ends? Um, and I don't think emergency managers are very good at defining that for themselves. And it takes a lot of time to say, look, I work from here to here. I work from J to M. Everything outside of that is somebody else. Um, and the problem is if you don't scope yourself out properly, it, well, scope creep kills every project and every program. Um, and if you don't know what you're supposed to be working on when, you're really setting yourself up for failure. And so, uh, yeah, we, we had to spend a lot of time with, uh, with our own program to be like, look, we're going to work on this. Everything else is falls within the EHS department or health and safety or anything higher than this goes into uh, corporate risk management because there are definitive relationships. And I think emergency managers themselves, because they don't really know what they're working on sometimes, will creep into other areas because they're like, oh, I just want to add value. So maybe I'll work on this project. And you're like, that project's out of scope. Don't go into that zone. That's not your zone. Let's like focus on what you should be doing in this area and then introduce improvements here. Magda, thank you, you so much for the conversation. I learned a ton. We'd love to have you back on the, the podcast again, if you're interested. I always like talking to you guys. I'm going to go make some tea in my Epic podcast mod. So yeah. <laughs> And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Magda Suzuki and the Ontario Disaster Emergency Management Conference for sharing her time and experience with us on the topic of making lasting change. 
Stay tuned for DemCon Debrief Part 2 coming soon. And if you're looking for a professional development opportunity, well, there are a number of EM conferences coming up this year, and many of them are virtual, which makes them cheaper and more accessible. In fact, 2021 might be the best year for conferences yet. You should definitely check out, for example, the Emergency Management Stakeholder Summit, which is happening March 23rd and 24th. And you'll even be able to catch Josh and I debating the incident command system there. Then there's also the Emergency Preparedness for the Healthcare Industry Conference, which is happening May 13th, and very exciting news. We've managed to partner with them. And if you use the term EPIC, capital E-P-I-C, when signing up, you get a $30 discount from the registration fee. So definitely check that one out. And then finally, in December... The Disaster and Emergency Management Conference is happening again, and this is a hybrid event, so you might actually get to come and shake our hands because we very much hope to be there. Now, just before I go, I would like to thank our sponsors. Uh, This podcast is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode was brought to you in part by ATB Financial. If you're wondering about how to manage your finances, rebuild emergency savings, or continue to save for your child's education, ATB can help. ATB was built to answer Alberta's financial questions in tough times. For answers to your questions and to learn more, visit atb.com. This episode was also brought to you in part by Park Power. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. Park Power has low overhead, which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates. Reach out for a no-obligations comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca or learn more at parkpower.ca. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.